Welcome to Building Insight, brought to you by the lawyers at Glayholt LLP. Building Insight is Canada's first podcast dedicated to construction law and dispute resolution. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Welcome to the Glayholt LLP podcast, Building Insight. Uh, I'm Ivan Merrow, and our topic today is ethical dilemmas in construction law. I'm joined by Brennan Bowles, a partner at Glayholt LP. Brennan, how are you doing? Very well, sir. Thank you. All right. So, Brennan, to uh, start off our ethical dilemmas topic uh, today, I want to refer to an Ontario Construction News article I just pulled um, off of the web. Uh, It refers to a recent Globe and Mail article uh, that was published saying that executives of Bonfield Construction Limited participated in a scheme in which the company paid $80 million in suspicious invoices to suppliers who channeled some of the money back to company insiders, uh, citing an investigation report from auditors filed in court. And as you and I both know, these are allegations only, and they're in an auditor's report. Uh, But this is big news around the uh, construction industry right now. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. And it it certainly got my attention when it was on the front page of the Globe and Mail um, early in November. Uh, We're recording this in November 2019. So it's hot news, actually. And I should say that I don't have any direct involvement in this case uh, or any sort of special knowledge. And uh, I agree, at this point, we don't really know what exactly happened here, but there was a very thorough investigation conducted by Ernst & Young, who is the uh, court-appointed monitor for Bonfield, uh, as a result of which there's a very vivid uh, report that's been filed with the court in Bonfield CCAA proceeding as to the specific allegations that are being made against this company. And it made me think that in some 20-odd years of practicing construction law, Although the scale, the magnitude of what Bonfield and some of the key uh, individuals who are involved in that company have been accused of doing is, is perhaps somewhat unusual, uh, the type of behavior itself is not necessarily something that's rare in the construction industry. And perhaps I'm guilty of maybe being a little um, cute in those comments, but it, it is something that I have seen frequently in my practice both from the point of view of representing clients in construction who think they've been defrauded and want to accuse the other side of doing that, or where I'm acting for a client who has themselves been accused of some serious financial impropriety or fraud. And it made me think that because there does seem to be some tendency in the construction industry for these types of problems to arise. Certainly, it's not the only industry where these things happen, but it does happen. That it would be interesting for us, Ivan, to talk about our experiences as construction lawyers and how to navigate these sort of issues given the obvious ethical questions that they raise. And I hope this is helpful for lawyers who listen to this podcast in considering their professional duties and responsibilities that are engaged in these circumstances regardless of the side of the table that they're on when these allegations are raised. I also hope that this will be of interest to the non-lawyers listening as well, because some of the rules of professional conduct 
Although I think they can be read and fairly easily understood by anyone on the Law Society of Ontario's website, maybe somewhat counterintuitive or less familiar to uh, a non-lawyer. And hopefully I can shed some light on the way that we as lawyers deal with these problems. If you are getting legal advice on these issues, some of the ethical considerations that are raised and that your lawyer is going to be dealing with and why they're giving you certain types of advice. I hope that's of interest and is uh, uh, illuminating for people. Absolutely. All right. So getting to the ethical considerations for lawyers dealing with fraud allegations specifically. So let's put ourselves in the circumstance. Obviously, we're a construction specialist law firm. There are often large sums of money uh, on construction projects uh, being asked for and paid on the basis of trust invoices, a belief that a supply or a service has been provided to a construction site. Uh, you have a client who has now been accused of some fraudulent um, activities on a construction site. Uh, now, this may be a large company where it's come to somebody's attention higher up the company. You may be dealing with an owner-operator who has been accused of being directly involved. Uh, but when you're meeting with a client for the first time, uh, the word privilege is one of the first that come to my mind. We have this obligation of confidentiality to our clients when they come to discuss their issues, if they have allegations against them. Uh, Brandon, can you walk us through some considerations we should have in mind and honoring our obligation as lawyers, as officers of the court, and most importantly, as lawyers to our clients and honoring that duty of privilege. Yes, and the issues I'm about to talk about actually apply under any lawyer-client relationship, even if it's something as benign and routine as a house purchase. Uh, or to perhaps go to the other end of the spectrum, if it's something more serious, uh, where the liberty, liberty of the person is at stake, a criminal charge, criminal lawyer uh, relationship. But in terms of construction, and now allegations of fraud are being made in a case, this duty of confidentiality and privilege that we have, which I think is very well known, becomes especially important. And the relevance of it to the lawyer-client relationship is, is heightened. Reason I say that is that one of the pieces of advice I want to impart and something I've found time and time again as I've dealt with these allegations in my practice is that there has to be a complete relationship of trust between the lawyer and the client in order to effectively deal with these matters. And in order to get there, one of the fundamental aspects of that relationship is that the client understands and can have confidence in their lawyer maintaining strict confidentiality over everything that is disclosed to them in that lawyer-client relationship. And what I'm saying there, it may, you know, especially for some lawyers, they may think, okay, we heard that back in the bar admission course when we took it, and, you know, it's, it's not something that's new to me. Like, it, it's, it's something we almost consider routine, but I, I wish to dwell on it a bit because it, it's so important. And I, I would argue it's one of the fundamental reasons we have lawyers in our society is because you need someone who you can get absolutely candid legal advice and strategy from without having to fear 
that information you impart to that person will be automatically subject to disclosure to either the state in prosecuting you in the criminal law context, but even in the civil, civil law context, your opponent in the lawsuit who then may be able to use that information against you or have it become publicly available, damaging, embarrassing, all the rest of it. Um, it's also important from a strategic perspective though because like anything else, we can't help you unless we actually understand the reality of the situation, what actually occurred, understand where we're weak, understand where we may need more information, understand where we need to investigate further, understand where we may have some strengths. Have to know it all, good, bad, or indifferent, and the client has to have absolute confidence and trust that they can tell me. And that's particularly the case where the allegations have some merit. The client has to be comfortable in telling me that yes, indeed this did happen, and how do we deal with it appropriately? Or, we're concerned that this might have happened. How do we go about investigating this, understanding what occurred, and dealing with it? Now, it may be that some of this information then later does come out through the process, but at least when we're in that room together, lawyer and client, if we have complete trust and confidence, and that professional responsibility not to disclose anything, that client tells me, if it's disclosed to me as privileged in that relationship, is so important in these circumstances. Absolutely. No, very well said. I think that the shroud of privilege is sacred and important, uh, and I think it extends even to being very discreet about who your clients are, how matters are discussed. I mean, it shouldn't leave, in my view, the walls of uh, the firm and the protected environment that you have. I think that uh, from time to time, you may be on public transportation and hear lawyers candidly discussing a matter. I personally don't find that that speaks well of, of professionals. Uh, I think that when we're dealing with sensitive matters, they should always be behind closed doors and clients expect that and deserve that from us. Um, but you touched on an interesting point, um, Brendan, that I wanted to come back to. You talked about uh, the potential that information comes out during a proceeding. Um, and when we're working with clients and we're honoring that duty of privilege, uh, maybe you can walk us through some different considerations that we need to have in mind uh, when we're approaching matters to ensure as much as possible that duty of privilege is upheld and whether or not there are any um, advice or instructions you give up front, is there technology that you've utilized in your practice to shore up that protection? I mean, it's more than just making sure the door is closed and having that relationship of honesty. There's, there's also steps in the proceeding where privilege can be further protected and maintained. Yeah, and in the construction law context, I think one of the things that makes these cases unique is the sheer volume of documentation that can be involved. Certainly, I wouldn't say that construction cases are the only ones that can have enormous scope of documentary production, but it is, in my experience at least, routine when litigation arises in a construction context that the volume of documentation generated by that project is enormous and therefore oftentimes the, the 
duty of production is, is, is very significant indeed. And now, of course, we're very used to using electronic um, programs for exchange of documents. We have discovery plans. It's ideal but impossible, perhaps, in certain circumstances to um, have eyes on every page. So it's important in your discovery plan to have um, agreements to deal with that with opposing counsel, for example, if documents have been inadvertently disclosed, uh, to, to, to be able to claw those back. Uh, and uh, that being said, you know, I, I would also say once something's seen, it, it's hard to unsee it. So now I'm talking about, you know, the, the uh, legal artifice of, although my opponent may have seen a document, they can't use it because they've agreed that if we've inadvertently waived privilege, uh, that we hadn't lost privilege over that document, nevertheless they would have seen it. So I think in terms of the, the specific issue I wanted to deal with today, it's really about having that relationship of trust that I think is fundamental, that the kind of client will come clean to you with what they've done. And I'll give you one example uh, from my practice uh, in, in a very general way. Uh, to kind of illustrate what I mean by that, is that normally in a construction dispute it'll be documents from a particular project that we would look at as being relevant and producible. I've had cases, interestingly, where once allegations like this come to light, it may be that the behavior that's being accused of is moving money from one part of the company to another. And indeed, that's sort of what was happening in the, the Bonfield case that you summarized for us at the, the outset, Ivan. So uh, it, it does mean that, that there may be reasons why the ordinary scope of documentary disclosure would get expanded beyond Project A to also include Project B, and I've had that happen to me in my career. And you can, at that point, really find that you're on defense, that you're on the back foot, because your opponent is now seeking production of, of documents from different projects, you didn't even see that issue coming. And we're now having to play catch up and get documents from another project that now, they would not have appeared relevant at first blush, but now do, uh, given the, the nature of the allegations that are being made. I think the other thing that I would say is that it's, it's, it's important, I think, to have that level of trust with the client at the outset of the first hint of these sort of things so that you're able to then really understand, okay, do I need to look beyond the four corners of this project as to what the relevant documents are that we should be dealing with and, and get out ahead of that uh, before we're in a position where the other side is now uh, driving production of those documents through a discovery process. Um, and so we're well past now where some of this information may have been able to have been kept out of you uh, and, and uh, controlled. Uh, we're, we're, we're now playing very much defense. Uh, so that, that, without that relationship of trust that the client can indeed tell you that, yeah, we've got a problem here and this is what you need to look with, it, it, it becomes very difficult to, to properly defend these, these cases. That's right. And with that relationship of trust, hopefully they're more willing to 
open the books and make access to different people in their organization available to us as lawyers to investigate, interview. Uh, because often the decision maker that you may be working with who's providing instruction on behalf of an, an organization may not have the full facts. So I think it, it is to the extent that we're able to, it is our duty as lawyers for the entire organization to always be looking for where are the edges of knowledge, where are the limits of what the person knows that I'm dealing with inside this company and what questions need to be asked to really get the full picture so you can stay on offense and you don't have to be defensive uh, in the future. I, I think that that's very important. I, I was curious, Brendan, uh, what opportunities are there to bring in third-party organizations, experts, individuals, uh, to assist and strengthen a client's case when they have allegations like this coming at them. I mean, it's not all going to be lawyer-client. These are big, complex disputes, and sometimes uh, fraud allegations introduce elements where I would imagine other perspectives are going to be valuable and helpful for our clients. So can you provide us some examples? Yeah, no, thanks. That's the right question to ask because if, if, if anyone takes anything out of this podcast, if I have anything to share, it, it would be this as a construction lawyer, get help with these issues because you, you need it in order to properly uh, advise a client. And uh, so the, the first step is to absolutely stress the importance of the confidentiality so that you are able to have that very direct conversation with the client and you understand what the problem is and where you need to look uh, for help. And I can tell you, uh, I am maybe being a little vague in terms of how I'm talking about some of the experiences that I've had because that is a duty that I take so seriously. The duty of confidentiality is one that survives uh, the termination of the lawyer-client relationship, it, it, it's ongoing. It's the clients to waive, not the lawyers. So uh, it's interesting to be doing this podcast because I have lots of great war stories, but I don't want to in any way uh, step on my own fundamental point, which is that duty of confidentiality is absolutely paramount and, and strict. That being said, I've found over the years that getting that help is absolutely necessary and it depends on the nature of the problem that you're uh, presented with but I would say it's a must to once you've got a handle on the documents where the documents are and indeed maybe even to understand what documents you need to look for to get help from a forensic accountant who has expertise in investigating these matters and there's lots of them out there. We mentioned at the outset, Ernst & Young, obviously, is the court-appointed monitor in the bond field matter, and the information that's come out in the publicly reported articles is largely from the investigation work that they've done. Now, on a perhaps less dramatic level, I've had many times in my career where we've had an expert of that nature be able to help us reconstruct a paper trail. Uh, from both sides, I should say, both from the point of view that we had circumstances maybe where a client felt that they were being um, falsely billed. And we had circumstances where the client was accused of having engaged in things like a kickback arrangement or things like submitting false invoices, falsifying timesheets, falsifying supplier invoices, 
the whole spectrum of stuff. I, I have kind of seen it all over the years. Uh, that forensic accountant being able to reconstruct the paper trail for you so you understand how 2 plus 2 equals 4. If you're prosecuting one of these cases, you need to be able to show that. If you're defending one of them, you need to be able to understand how that's done. Now, it may not necessarily be an accountant that you need. I've had other types of help. Always get the help, though. I've had situations where the client may be a rather sophisticated organization, and there are reasons of corporate governance, quite apart from good strategic considerations why they need to get to the bottom of these issues. Having an independent um, investigator, perhaps an independent law firm, not your, you yourself and your firm, uh, retained to specifically look into these allegations and get to the bottom of them can be very helpful. Uh, I've had uh, situations where that other lawyer has been a civil lawyer, uh, and in some cases the news you get back is good, in other cases it's not good, depending on your perspective. I've had situations that are rather more serious, where we've uh, retained the assistance of a good criminal defense lawyer, uh, and we've had situations where that, that lawyer was able to, with a good relationship of trust that the information was confidential and privileged, work with us to be able to get to the bottom of an issue, approach the other side with um, a disclosure of exactly what went on, opening up the books to them as well, making restitution, making an apology, getting the matter resolved on a confidential civil basis within a rather short time period as opposed to a very lengthy, protracted, public criminal prosecution. Uh, I dare say, looking back on it, it was a very good result for the client, even though it was a very scary situation. No, that's excellent. I think those are great examples of recognizing your boundaries uh, in your ability to assist a client through a particular situation, recognizing the opportunity for third parties to deliver the right value and to solve a problem using their own expertise and their specialty. And I think that, that as specialist lawyers, we need to recognize other specialists and bring them in whenever appropriate. Absolutely. Now, Brandon, I, I wanted to adjust the conversation and, and maybe ratchet it up a bit. Um, I wondered if you could take us through a very difficult situation where you've recognized something is going on, you've respected and honored your duties of professional conduct to call out the behavior, and there are rules of professional conduct and commentary that provides a reporting scheme where you're obligated to bring it to the attention of officers and directors within an organization as one example of an activity that's going on. You do everything in your power to report to that organization as you're obligated to do, but the activity doesn't stop and you're forced to get off the record. And I'm pulling this just from the rules of professional conduct. I wanted to pull a, a very difficult type situation and, and just ask you, what would your advice be to practitioners who are in a situation where they see 
uh, allegations of fraud being made, behavior that's not coming to an end. Um, how do you honor your profession, your obligations, and honor your um, your rules of professional conduct that we're all obligated to follow, while uh, still maintaining that duty to the client? It's a big issue for a civil lawyer because if you're a criminal lawyer, of course, I think the answer is. Well, regardless of what type of lawyer you are, you cannot give, get your client to give false evidence. So if your client has admitted to you that they have committed fraud, that they've submitted a false invoice, for example, you can't put them on the stand to testify that the invoice is valid. That would be unethical and a breach of your professional responsibilities. The way you deal with that as a criminal defense lawyer is it's up to the state to prove their burden and you don't have to testify in your own defense at a trial. Not an option in a civil case. I think uh, when I was a young lawyer, it wasn't a fraud case, but I, uh, I had a trial where my client didn't testify and it didn't go well. The adverse inference was, was drawn. Uh, so the, the circumstances you're describing, I, I am happy to say I've never actually had that happen to me where the client basically said, uh, we're going to continue doing this regardless of, of your advice. I think what I would say, though, is that, and you put your finger on it in your question, is that um, if you're in a situation where the client is forcing you to take unprofessional and unreasonable positions, i.e. in a civil case, we're going to pretend that the fraud doesn't exist, neither not testify or provide false evidence, you cannot act for that client and you would, you would have to get off the record. Now, what I found is a spectrum in my practice. There may be situations where you're dealing with an individual person and if you've got that right relationship of trust, you've been able to get the story out and you understand what's happening, it's very much a matter, I think, of, of finding a remedy to that situation. My experience with corporate clients is that uh, everyone knows in the real world you're going to have some bad apples in the organization and, and where that does occur my universal experience thus far has been that they, they do deal with it uh, that it's not uh, in the interest of any business to sort of look the other way uh, they uh, ultimately I find end up dealing with these um, situations in a, in a responsible way but you have to have, I think, just to get back to what I said earlier, first that relationship of trust, that actual disclosure of what's going on. We diagnose the problem, we deal with it, we get help. Particularly from a corporate governance perspective, if we've had an independent investigator look at this and we've been able to establish what happened, we understand what the paper trail is, then the situation is usually remedied from that perspective. All right, thank you. That's, that's a great summary on uh, how to defend against difficult allegations like that that come up. And before we wrap up, I did want to turn the tables and ask you, uh, what about prosecuting uh, fraud cases when you have a client come to you pounding the table, wanting to make very serious civil allegations of fraud against a defendant? Uh, obviously, as lawyers, we have a duty to act in the client's best interests. Uh, but what are some considerations from an ethical perspective that we should have in mind uh, before we 
go and make every single allegation of fraud that a client wants us to make in a construction case? That's a good question because in my experience, actually, uh, although certainly those circumstances where my own client has been accused of fraud, particularly credible allegations of fraud, are um, situations that get your attention and they're very memorable. Uh, they're, they're relatively rare when I look back over a 20-year career, uh, comparatively speaking. What's somewhat less rare and somewhat interesting is that oftentimes I will be told by a client that this is fraud when they're talking about the other side's behavior. And, and candidly, Ivan, it's often anger over the breakup of a relationship because construction is about relationships. You know, all the Stones motto is we build on great relationships. Relationships are what makes a construction project. Contractor, owner, owner, architect, subcontractors, suppliers. When those relationships break down or become frayed, uh, it may not be as dramatic as our friends who practice at the family law bar experience, but people can get very angry and oftentimes that that expression you hear, this is fraud, I've been ripped off, I've been defrauded, is really, I've been disrespected, I haven't been treated properly, I am angry, and I want something done about it. The reason I'm kind of dwelling on this a little bit is, of course, as lawyers, we cannot, as you alluded to in your question, just allege fraud loosely. That would be a, a violation of our professional responsibilities, and indeed it would be unwise representation of a client because if at the end of the day that allegation is not going to be upheld by a court you've now exposed your client to substantial indemnity costs so the risks of fraud allegations are real for both sides the reputational uh, risk um, to the uh, person who's accused of it is, is real and obvious but sometimes overlooked I think in the equation is the risk to the person making the accusation that if they don't meet the not criminal standard, it's not proof beyond all reasonable doubt, but proof on an enhanced balance of probabilities that this fraud occurred, uh, the person who has been vindicated will be entitled to a substantial, a big cost recovery from the person who has made that misplaced allegation. So the risks of acting on one of these cases as the prosecutor, quote-unquote, are, are real. And it's, it's really your obligation in those circumstances to, again, complete relationship of trust with the client, lay all your cards for me on the table, why do you say this is fraud? And I often will say, like, you know, pretend I'm a, you know, a child. Like, lay it out for me that simply. Like, why do you say you're defrauded? We have to be able to really understand this and communicate it in a simple fashion. And get the help required. Now, it may be something that's done in stages. You get the documents through the disclosure process in the, in the lawsuit or the arbitration, and you, those documents allow you to retain an expert, such as a forensic accountant, to con connect the dots. But you, but you need to almost do the same things that I described earlier in, in reverse. Do you have a case here, and are you going to be making allegations that are founded in the evidence, and as a lawyer, you have a duty to advocate your client's cause zealously, and if they've been defrauded, I've always felt you ought to say that, plainly, 
forcefully, but if you are doing that without having done that due diligence in advance, you are exposing the client to substantial indemnity costs. And for that reason, it, it's not something to be done at all lightly. And, I, and, re, and part of the reason I'm also dwelling on this a bit is I just, again, I've had so much real world experience with this, is for people who aren't lawyers to try to understand that, that it's a special word in the eyes of the court that may be different uh, than what I would use in everyday conversation. It's a signal that the stakes are now raised. So we, we don't do it lightly, and we don't do it without getting our ducks in a row first. That's right. No, that's very well said. As lawyers, when you hear that F word, fraud, you do have to proceed carefully. There are other torts and cause of action you can use first before necessarily ratcheting it up, as you said, and making it a fraud allegation. There's misappropriation, there's conversion you can allege. Uh, if you're within your limitation period and you need to be mindful of that as always, uh, you may have grounds to have an amendment and turn it up to the fraud level if you do find information that justifies uh, putting it at that um, at that level of severity. And, and I would also say it's not just substantial indemnity costs. I believe that an unfounded fraud allegation can entitle the party who successfully defends against it to full full indemnification of their legal costs, which can be extreme, obviously. So it's it's absolutely, as you said, not to be taken lightly at all. Um, and Brendan, if, if you'll indulge me with one more hypothetical, I wanted to raise this situation. Not all of us have had it happen. I believe that I have in my practice, the client who wants you to threaten criminal proceedings against the other side. And we've been talking a lot about civil fraud. Obviously, there is civil fraud and criminal fraud. When you have a client demanding that the threat of criminal proceedings be brought against their adversary in civil proceeding, how do you approach that? I, I speak very directly and very plainly with them. And uh, essentially, it's this. We don't threaten. We do. We don't threaten. We do. In other words, we report it to the police. You cannot threaten a criminal prosecution to gain advantage in a civil case. That, again, is also unethical and breach of the rules of professional conduct. If we're going to do that, we don't threaten, we actually do it. Now, my practical advice, though, is this. My experience with the police is that you need to make it very plain and obvious to them. They will not get involved and oftentimes they will literally say to you this is a matter for the civil courts and my reading of that generally is that they have limited resources unless it's very plain and obvious um, which oftentimes candidly in these construction situations it's not uh, then they don't have the resource or the inclination to get involved that being said I would certainly do that, and I have done that in my career, uh, rather than uh, ever just sort of throwing this threat out to try to leverage someone into a more favorable settlement in a lawsuit. So I've been in a situation where we've gotten ready, we've put our facts together, we've gone and met with the police. Uh, and in some cases, there's been interest, but by and large, I'd say very little uptake, interestingly. 
uh, over the years I've, I've found that is that it, especially if you're there as a civil lawyer it immediately raises that oh this is a civil case go deal with it in your civil case that's kind of just a practical takeaway uh, but let's be honest about it when we're talking about these types of allegations they are oftentimes crime and I'm not saying or would ever suggest that they should not be treated as such but the threat it shouldn't be a threat at all it should be we're doing this because it's the right thing to do or we're going to um, prosecute this case in the civil courts and seek uh, substantial indemnity costs or even full indemnity costs. I'm aware of the reverse of the situation you described, actually. I'm aware of a case where the victim of a fraud was awarded, instead of punitive damages, the judge awarded actual indemnity legal costs. So don't use the threat of criminal prosecution for civil advantage, but don't rule it out either. There are instances where I think the police would become very much interested uh, in these situations, I think they are by and large ones that are simple, understandable, and substantial. Otherwise, by and large, they usually are preferred right back where you started the civil case. Excellent. All right, thank you so much, uh, Brennan. Uh, so everybody, that was uh, Glayholt LLP, our Building Insight podcast. Uh, thanks for joining us on our Ethical Dilemmas in Construction Law episode. Uh, you heard from Brendan Bowles, a partner of their office, and I'm Ivan Merrill. Uh, thanks for joining us, and we uh, hope to see you next time. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And visit glayholt.com for more information. If you have any questions, email us at info at We look forward to having you join us again.